and pray that I worthy of uh, reproduction. Uh, what, what I'd like to talk about today, so one of the things I'm doing is uh, I'm aiming toward uh, having oblation for those of you who are in formation right now uh, during the Easter season. And uh, hopefully after Christmas, uh, I'll be able to, eat, uh, to meet with each of you individually and uh, we can talk about the, the last part of this process. But what I'm focusing on now are uh, what I would consider sort of the pillar obligations of being an oblate. So Lexio Divina is just something, if, if you're interested in Benedictine spirituality, it's part of what you're going to do. Uh, I think Cherokee's question is a good one. You know, it's important to have uh, time every day to do this. It doesn't necessarily have to be that long. Um, but it's good to have, as Brother Ignatius said, one time and one place every day so that it's just built into your schedule. We do it in the morning because there, there are fewer distractions and generally the city's quieter at that time. Today what I'd like to talk about as uh, a pillar obligation of uh, Benedictine spirituality and therefore for oblates is community. And uh, so stability and community. And first let me talk about some of the background, how stability came to be something that we as Benedictines recognized, and how then uh, it's kind of slipped away from Christian consciousness. Christians are all aware of the importance of community, but as I was saying before the meeting started, and not all of you were here, I was talking about uh, what I call the modern liberal order, just the way we organize our politics in the modern West. Um, We've built into it all kinds of assumptions about human nature that make community life uh, difficult, sometimes unappealing, um, apparently irrational in some ways. So that, and that makes us, uh, you know, the technical word is uh, we feel alienated. <laughs> and and uh, so we want community, but when we end up in an actual community, we sort of feel like all of, these people are kind of weird. They're kind of uh, got to go along with this stuff. Uh, these, it's difficult to sort of learn other, you know, the weird habits of other people, etc. They get some funny ideas, and well, maybe I can find some other community. So we go from community to community, and uh, we we the end result is we feel alienated. And the the odd thing is that it's not just that we're alienated from others. But we, we, we're not quite sure who we are anymore at a certain point. And I'm going to explain why that happens and how Benedictine experience can help us mend this. First, let me go back to the desert. Uh, and whenever we talk about monastic life, it's helpful to go back to the earliest years. One of the great uh, maxims of the Egyptian desert, uh, I, I, I didn't look up who said this, but... It was something of a commonplace. The, the fathers of, uh, of the monks in those days would say something like, stay in your cell and it will teach you everything. So the, the temptation of the young monk going out to the desert is to traipse about and meet every single possible mentor he can and get little advice. I think the, the modern day equivalent would be somebody who's discerning a religious vocation and visits 60 different communities and meets with five different spiritual directors and gets all this advice, but uh, some of it's conflicting and it just he ends up more confused than 
clarified in his intentions. So the old Abbas would say, you know, don't, don't move. Just stay in one place. Because what you'll find is that you're going to confront yourself. And this is the, this is the sort of most important thing that happens to us in Christian life. We're going to confront ourselves. And uh, this might seem to be somewhat um, outside of the scriptural witness. But let me just give you an example of Peter and Paul. Uh, Peter becomes the rock when uh, he thinks he knows who he is. He says, yeah, Lord, I'm going to die with you. No matter what happens, I'm never going to go away. (laughs) And uh, Jesus says, what? Well, actually, in fact, uh, before the cock crows today, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, no, of course not. And in Luke's gospel, we have this very, very beautiful and touching passage where uh, after Peter issues his denials, the cock crows, and Jesus actually looks at him. And this is the first time Peter really confronts who he is. Uh, I'm not the person I thought I was. I'm actually weak. Uh, I actually, uh, all of my ideals I'm ready to throw overboard when I'm in a corner, you know. And uh, it's a painful realization for him. And of course, this is one of the reasons why we don't like to stay in ourselves. Because when we confront ourselves, we see parts of ourselves that we don't like very much. The Lord offers us uh, to know ourselves so that he can heal us and we can rely on him and not on ourselves. And we see this again in the reconciliation that takes place when Jesus speaks to Peter uh, and, and just asks, you know, do you love me? And then he gives him a mission, you know, so this is who you're going to be. You know, when you were young, you did what you wanted, but when you're older, uh, you're going to be forced to do things you don't want to do. But it's by this that, that you will glorify me. So Peter discovers himself in this reconciliation with Jesus, right? And so this is the process that uh, our monastic spirituality is looking to inculcate in us. But it can't happen if we're constantly moving around. So the, the, the virtue that Peter had is even though he denied Christ, uh, he, he didn't despair and run away, uh, as, say, Judas did. Paul has a similar experience. Paul is certain he's got everything down when he's Saul, right? When he's, these Christians are screwing everything up, we have to get rid of them. <laughs> and then he meets Jesus Christ, and he realizes, again, who he is. He encounters himself. He's, he, he thinks he sees, but he's actually blind. Uh, and it's, it's in this long, slow process of reinterpreting the scriptures that he does uh, in his time back in Tarsus and with the community in Antioch uh, that, that he becomes who he is for real. He becomes Paul. So uh, this idea of stability, not moving from place to place, encountering ourselves, not distracting ourselves from that process of getting to know ourselves is an important background element to this monastic idea. Uh, And so St. Benedict, when he writes his rule, he has uh, the harshest words of criticism for the gyrovags, right? So remember, uh, chapter one in the rule is about the kinds of monks. And uh, we've got the two good kinds. We've got the anchorites, who after long experience in community life, go out to fight the devil hand to hand. And then there are the strong kind, the Cenobites, who live in communities under an abbot and a rule. Okay, so these are the good monks. The the monks he doesn't much care for are the Cerebeites. 
They look like they live in community, but they're, they're, these communities are more like bachelor pads or fraternities or something like this. So it's a group of people who actually live together, but they're all doing their own thing. Okay, there's no, there's no unity. Um, and then, but the gyre of eggs are the worst of all because they go from one community to another and just kind of, um, it's a little bit like, um, again, in our modern world, I would compare this, uh, I'll date myself slightly, to, to celebrities like Madonna, who, when I was young, uh, every couple of years, she had a different sort of persona. And I think today it's maybe Lady Gaga has taken her place in this. Uh, so we, we reinvent ourselves constantly. But the, as I say, the danger of this is we don't, find out who we really are in God's eyes. You know, God has created us for a purpose, um, and that's important to remember, and we're going to discover this purpose in a commitment of some kind, a commitment to some sort of community structure. Okay? Um, so an avoidance of ourselves is an avoidance of interiority. The paradox of this is that it's commitment to others that will sort of force this out of us. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's in that... Um, the, the accounting that others call us to, that, that we have to give an account of ourselves to somebody else, that forces us to, to be honest with ourselves. <laughs> okay? So, uh, St. Benedict also contributes to this with his emphasis on silence. Because another way we can avoid this process is by talking a lot. And so silence with others uh, deepens our awareness of Christ's presence, deepens our awareness of our own tendency to, you know, pretend we're somebody we're not. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that happens in community life is gradually, little by little, uh, we get rid of all the false pretenses we have about ourselves. Um, we see this, this happens in, in married life, too, you know. Uh, this is one of the things that that marriages undoubtedly go through stages. I'm not someone who can, who can uh, uh, speak on this with expertise, uh, especially in the presence of married persons here. Uh, but surely one of the things you learn is that, you know, we're, I'm not quite the person I thought I was, and it's because I have a wife or a husband, and, and I have kids, and they, they ask me to do things that I wouldn't otherwise have to do. <laughs> so I discover things about myself, right? Strengths, too, not just weaknesses. I discover, uh, you know, Peter ends up being the rock. He does end up dying for Christ. But it's only after he sort of learns who he really is. St. Benedict formalizes this dynamic in a vow of stability. This is one of his innovations. This didn't exist before the rule of St. Benedict. So he wants his monks to stay with one community, with one abbot, in one place. And... Uh, our vow of stability today canonically is understood primarily actually to the community, to the brothers. It's secondarily connected to the place. We don't move from our place without really good reason, and uh, the whole community has to approve of it, basically. You need a, a super majority in a community vote to move somewhere. So, so uh, we're not likely to move uh, unless uh, the situation is, is really that dire. Um, and St. Benedict wasn't necessarily thinking about community, which is the, the word that I want to focus on. But his vow of stability has the effect of focusing us on, on the dynamics of community living. And uh, it's interesting, the, the other thing he does that 
uh, is an innovation, but which is quite providential, is in his second chapter on the abbot, uh, he actually, uh, first of all, he, he takes a lot of material from the rule of the master that I've, I've mentioned before. But then he actually separates out part of that chapter and expands it. And what he separates out is how the abbot is to consult the community for major decisions. And so this uh, gives the individual monks a certain investment in the community's uh, governance and, again, requires something I, I tell brothers frequently. For me to make good decisions in community life, uh, I, I need good advice. For the brothers' advice to be good, they have to, we all have to be looking at the same thing together. We have to learn how to have a common good, a common vision. It's not a word I like to use. Uh, but uh, a sense of belonging together. And we do this together. How many of you have seen of Gods and Men, this movie about the Algerian Trappists? Yeah, a few people. I highly recommend it. Um, of Gods and Men. It's, uh, it came out maybe five years ago. And it's, a, it's a, based on a true story of Trappists in, uh, in Algeria who uh, during the Civil War uh, were at least captured and possibly executed by uh, Islam militants, Islamic militants. And uh, the, the drama of the story is, uh, we know our lives are in danger, should we leave or not? And uh, it's, it's far and away the most realistic portrayal of monastic life I've ever seen on screen. Uh, and partly what's realistic about it are the community meetings. <laughs> they have a whole series of community meetings where they discuss, should we go or should we stay? And um, uh, one gets a sense in that, uh, that whatever they do, they do it together. You know, that's the important thing. Whatever we decide, if we decide to stay, if we decide to go, we stay together. Okay? So it's this commitment to community that, that's really uh, very beautifully portrayed and has certain effects that I want to talk about today. The other source of this focus on community is actually the life of St. Benedict. Uh, at the end of the life of St. Benedict, uh, when Benedict goes to Monte Cassino, he founds 12 monasteries of 12 monks each. And uh, it's interesting that St. Benedict starts out as a hermit, but ends up in this, this sort of huge confederation of communities. Uh, but it's also significant that there are these 12, because obviously that's the, the number of apostles. And what we're meant to see is that the monastery is a reproduction of the apostolic band and the, the communion that exists in the church. So the, the community witness that we bear to the world is meant to be something of an icon of the unity of the church itself. Okay, So uh, for us to, to find a way to be a community together is to help the church find a way to unity as well. So uh, the community is a place for practicing caritas. It's a place for bearing one another's burdens, etc. It's interesting, I mentioned St. Paul already. Uh, we think of him as traveling all the time. And of course, actually, most of what he did was stay in, in certain places. He did travel, uh, but he also lived for many years in Antioch, and then in uh, Corinth, and then in Ephesus. 
And it, there were other communities where he was a stranger. You know, he, he was not known in Jerusalem and he was not known in Rome before he went to those two places. They had their own communities. And sometimes there were frictions uh, between these communities. Uh, and, and that's something I hope to get to. I might have to wait until the next meeting. Uh, but uh, it's interesting to note that these communities have their own inner logic. And uh, so that Paul coming to Jerusalem had to learn something about what's going on there in order to present his gospels, he says in Galatians, uh, and make sure it was acceptable there. Uh, This is a a good lesson for us, that in different churches, there are different expressions, different traditions, different languages, different ways of relating to one another, different structures, and so on. This would be parallel today, say, to different dioceses, and uh, I, I wrote a blog post last week. I, after the election, um, I had many uh, people contact me asking me to write something <laughs> uh, to explain what just happened and what we're supposed to do now. Um, and of course, you, you should know that uh, in, in the world, you know, outside the monastery, uh, uh, probably a majority of my friends are in academia. And so you can imagine that uh, they were largely, uh, Catholic or not, they were largely Hillary supporters. And uh, suddenly found themselves, uh, you know, their, their world was uh, quite um, shaken, <laughs> their, their worldview. Um, and part of the problem is that the, the, the sense of the United States as some kind of community of communities, uh, as a a federated republic of, of states, uh, wherein there are lots of different cultures, uh, but we find common cause in, in uh, national defense and so on. This ideal has been broken apart, clearly. Uh, we, we, we no longer are able to talk to each other. You know? And uh, I, I want to say a little bit about how that's happened. And I think there's a, a similar danger we run into in the Catholic Church when instead of focusing on our relationships with our neighbors and our relationships within our parishes and dioceses, uh, we rely on the Pope, uh, who's far away, to sort of legislate everything. And this has been something of a bad habit we've had for, um, for some time. Vatican II attempted to address it with a principle of subsidiarity. But anyway, if you want to read more about this, it's on my blog uh, on our, at our website. Um, So, the sense of community uh, has has waned. The the historical reasons for this are very complex. Uh, uh, Lots of things played into it. There's a desire for a more consistent sense of justice and jurisdiction in the late Middle Ages that led to stronger and stronger kingships, stronger and stronger emphases on centralized leadership. Um, there were good motives in this, as I say. Um, it helped to bring about the modern, say, judicial system in the West, uh, as opposed to, say, things like relying on, um, you know, the uh, trial in the sense of, like, discovering if someone's guilty by having them carry a red-hot iron and see if it burns them. You know, these were the sorts of things that, that were used to, uh, adjudicate in legal cases in the Middle Ages. And uh, this was seen, these sort of local customs were seen to be 
insufficient for the needs of the growing population of Europe as the cities grew in the late Middle Ages and so on. And so uh, kings and bishops and monasteries and the pope tended more and more to centralize power uh, and, and so that they could standardize the judicial system, among other things, and law enforcement and so on. But this, as I said, it had the bad effect of taking the, what had been uh, coherent local communities and breaking them apart by, by enforcing uh, structures from far away. And uh, as I say, in the modern world now, we've, we've come to depend very much on faraway authorities. And we don't tend to think in terms of neighborhoods, parishes, uh, etc. Even, even states, cities, and so on. I was quite shocked to see among the fallout from the election somebody um, from California um, writing about, uh, saying, uh, again, this was shocking for most Californians because I think they went sort of 60% Democrat in this election. Uh, now they're talking about, well, maybe we should leave the union, and they're talking about states' rights. And I thought, well, this is, this is amazing, because when I was younger and I would talk about states' rights, I had to be very careful, because this was usually interpreted as sort of code language for slavery. Uh, obviously, this, this Californian writing in the New York Times is not thinking about that. Uh, but, uh, but what he's talking about is that there's, there's actually a particular kind of culture in California that's different than Nebraska or Virginia or Chicago. And, and, and that's actually quite human, you know? Um, community is always a local thing. It's about relationships between ourselves. Uh, and we have depended for a long time on, as I say, faraway authorities to make our decisions for us. And there, there have been reasons for this. You know, I, I don't know how we would have uh, overcome slavery in the United States without a, an intervention from the, the national government. Perhaps we could have found a different way, uh, but that's what happened. We, we, we uh, centralized more and more power in the presidency, and so the states had less and less power. Uh, and again, this, this affects then how we experience ourselves. The last thing I want to say about the difficulty we have is that the modern liberal idea, which grows out of this movement towards centralization, has this uh, sort of offsetting emphasis on a new creation of the modern world, which is the individual. And we don't often, we, we experience ourselves so much as individuals today that, that the idea that this is a, an invention is somewhat foreign to us. But it really is. Um, in most traditional cultures, you are uh, the person you were born to be based on your family, uh, your gender, your social status in society, etc. Uh, if, if uh, so, like my my father was a, a chef, uh, I would have been born to be a chef. You know, uh, if my father was a tailor, then I would learn grow up learning how to sew and uh, etc. And so my place in society was not born of, of me sort of looking inside myself to determine what I want to do with my life, what really moves me, but rather by what was given to me by others. And uh, in the modern world, we've, we've tried to reverse this. We've tried to give people the freedom to be what they want to be. Uh, but this has, again, the, the produced a situation in which it's very difficult for us to commit to communities 
Because communities, again, will always ask something of us, and this will determine who we are. We don't get to decide who we are anymore uh, when we're in a community. We decide together. And, and this chafes against us in, in many ways. Uh, but it's actually, as I tried to indicate at the beginning, what actually sets us free. And in fact, uh, there are modern philosophers who can show us that it's only in committed relationships that we can become rational beings, that we can become moral beings, meaning good. Right? Uh, this, this, again, is very difficult to conceive because part of the modern myth of the individual is traditions, customs, community obligations, these are dogmas or you know, these sorts of things make us irrational. And the only way to be rational is to, is to get rid of all those commitments. This starts with Descartes, right? The only way to be rational is to pretend I don't believe anything at all. <laughs> and just to search inside myself for a, a, a firm, fixed point. I think, therefore I am, right? Uh, but in fact, of course, for Descartes even to have conceived of this program, he had to be born in France at a certain time, learn Latin, right? Because his, his treatise in which he says this, he, he says this in Latin. Uh, he didn't invent the Latin language. He inherited it from a long, glorious tradition. And uh, he inherited all kinds of things from his Catholic upbringing, etc., etc. Uh, but there's this myth we have that uh, things like dogma, tradition, community, commitments, hamper us in some way and make us irrational. So I'd like to propose to you uh, a different idea of rationality. Uh, I could start by asking, you know, how do you know when someone's not rational? If, if you meet someone who is insane, it's sort of, you know, in the technical sense, okay? Uh, we have a psychologist here, so he could probably give us a DSL definition of this, but uh, what is, how do you know that somebody's insane? How do they act or what do they do? Uh, well, just uh, if I asked you, 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 you came to me and you said, oh, I just was talking to this guy. He's crazy. I'd say, how do you know? What would you say? <laughs> uh, we don't actually use the word anymore. Yeah. Huh? Uh, Not crazy, I'm sure, but insane. Uh, I mean, words that, yeah. I mean, the, the, what we like to say about ourselves is that we think we, have, we might have a useful role. So how do you know someone's psychotic? Um, well, what we describe it as, mm -hmm. and we recognize that this is very culturally specific, mm -hmm. is psychosis is when someone appears to be having an experience that is profoundly different than everybody else. So it's def defined in terms of relationship. Yes. Yeah. So uh, QED. <laughs> Actually, all the things you said. So you said work, intimate relationships, and what was the other Social. one? Social. Right. So I would say, just you know, as a non-psychologist, if I meet someone and he doesn't make sense to me, he can't say to me things that I can relate to, that, that sort of, uh, I can't expect him to give an account of what he's doing or why he's saying the things he's saying that, that will make, that, 
will be rational to me. So what I'm saying is that to be rational is turn it around. For me to be a rational person is for me to be able to say things to you in a relationship that you accept as good reasons. Okay? So rationality is a fancy word. Let's talk about reason. We use the word colloquial, colloquially. Uh, why did you, um, you know, why, why did you set up the tables this way today? Well, because we have an oblate meeting. You know, I give you a reason. Uh, if I, if you said, uh, why did you set up the tables this way? And I responded, because it's February 12th, and every February 12th I put the tables like this. You would interpret me as being possibly irrational, <laughs> because the reason I give you doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't seem to hold together with the situation we find ourselves in, the usual habitual behavior, the sort of needs of the situation. If I say oblate meeting, oh yeah, okay, we're going to have 15 people here and they need places to sit and a place to put their coffee. Uh, that, that makes sense, right? So to be a reasonable person is to be able to give an account of myself to somebody else and have that person recognize in it something responsible. You know, so there's some kind of responsiveness between us. Uh, and for, so when what happened in our election, when um, I, the, I, I saw this coming from a mile away because I had all of these, these uh, acquaintances in academia saying, um, you'd have to be crazy to vote for Donald Trump. And of course, I knew people who were planning to vote for Donald Trump. And I know they're not crazy, but they can give me reasons. I might not agree with them, but, but they make sense. They, they hold together in some fashion. I might want to argue with them, well, you might consider, say, a third party. You might consider the Solidarity Party because it follows Catholic values. And they might say, yeah, but a vote for a third party isn't going to... We can have a discussion, right? We can give each other reasons. But what seemed not to be able to take place was that persons who were going to vote for Trump and persons who were going to vote for Clinton could actually talk to each other in such a way as to have a productive... Uh, rational conversation. So they interpreted, particularly I'd say the, the, the Democratic faction interprets the Republican faction as being irrational in some way. And the, the reason for this is that we've, we've, so, we've gone so long without being able to give an account to one another that we interpret each other as being crazy. I mean, I would say, you know, one of the things I find most um, distressing is trying to give an account of the Catholic understanding of why abortion is immoral to someone who is pro-choice. Like there seems to be no, nothing we have in common anymore for, for me to appeal to that, that would move the heart of that person. So there's been a breakdown in communio. You know, we, we're, we're not living the same, we're not in the same community anymore. We, we, can't, we can't speak the same language. We don't have a common understanding. And so this is why community is so important, because in a community, uh, we, we, you can't go for very long with those kinds of fundamental disagreements without the community falling apart. And when the community falls apart, I lose myself. You know? so, so there's much more at stake in saying, okay, I'm committed to this community here. And uh, so I invite you as oblates, I mean, the, the commitment, part of the commitment you make is to this particular group of men and to each other. 
and then to be accountable in some way, that we're accountable to each other. Um, I have to say things again that make sense to you. But and if I say things that don't make sense, you have the obligation to ask me to justify myself. <laughs> you know, Tony. Um, I'm recalling a translation mm -hmm. of St. Athanasius' Life of St. Anthony, mm -hmm. in which he describes the moment when, after the locals had broken down the wall of his, the place where he had mm -hmm. been for 20 years, yeah. I can't remember the test exactly, but it says something like he came uh, forth from he came the forth as, from a holy shrine. Yes, <laughs> he was not uh, he, he was not overborne. He was not thin from starvation. He was not fat from indolence. He was not overborne by joy. He was not overborne <clears throat> by sorrow. He was rational. Right. Yeah, as if in accord with reason. I think is the is that what it sort means of in accord. With yeah, his his whole body and and self possession were in accord with reason, which of course would be logos in okay. the Greek. I assume I haven't read Antony's life in Greek, but so it's that's the usual translation. Yeah. So that's speaking of something different from this idea of rational. I don't think it is. This this is what's interesting about Antony because one of the things that happens is what 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 immediately happens after that. They ask him for. He teaches. Yes, he, he has wisdom that, that uh, again, makes sense to all these disciples who have come out to hear him. So um, this, is, this is different because Antony, of course, is a, is a hermit. Um, and, uh, I, but part of what, what holds us all together is he's had a profound encounter with himself. And, and in, in trying to make an account for himself, he's learned a certain wisdom that then he can pass on to others so they can come to know themselves and they can speak. Um, yeah, what, what I'm saying could be interpreted, so thank you. Uh, I, this, this is what I'll say, and this is where we'll have to wrap up for this time, but obviously there's more to say about community in a particularly Benedictine context. What, I, what I'm saying could be interpreted as a kind of relativism or perspectivism, that what's true for one community might not be true for another community, okay? Um, and as Catholics, we're, we're obviously committed to a, a stronger sense of truth than that. And in fact, we're committed to the idea that there's one truth, and it's Jesus Christ himself, okay? What, what is um, paradoxical, but actually also very beautiful about the Catholic teaching, particularly the, the teaching of subsidiarity that comes... Vatican II, is that the, the, the way to the one truth is paradoxically through love of my neighbor, love of my, my local church. Loyalty to the Pope, yes, but, but if, we, if we use loyalty to the Pope as a way of avoiding relationships at a local level, uh, it's not going to work. You know? uh, we'll actually build up uh, our knowledge of God through these interactions with the persons that God puts in front of us. Um, so I, I don't want to be heard as espousing any kind of relativism. I, I want to be very clear about that. But unfortunately, the, the only sort of way as moderns that we understand an opposition to relativism is a kind of absolutism with a centralized power in the center, rather than the more slow, sort of painstaking building up of communion from local uh, expression. So, yeah, I would, I, I can express this anxiety with um, 
uh, but also the solution by quoting someone uh, that I met when I was in the seminary. So I, I studied my, my theology at St. John's in Collegeville, the Benedictine community there. And they every year they have a monastic experience where they have eight or ten guys spend a month there and live the monastic life. Um, and they, they may go on to be vocation candidates or not. But I was having lunch with one of these young guys uh, one day, and he said, the, the, the one thing that concerns me about the Benedictines is, is if y'all go crazy, who stops you? <laughs> and, and what he meant by this is there seems to be no centralized structure in the Benedictine order. And there isn't, actually. That's, that's what's really interesting about uh, the confederation of the Benedictines. The authority is in, is in the local abbot. And this seems like it's dangerous. As modern people, we sense that there's something dangerous about sort of committing so much authority to, a, to such a sort of a local parochial figure as an abbot. Um, uh, the abbots themselves, of course, come together, and we, we, we just had two abbots visit us. And we take care of one another. We, we, we visit each other's communities. But when we visit, the first thing we want to do is honor the community as it exists. We don't go in and just start picking pointing out all the flaws of the community. We, we, we have to understand it first, because every Benedictine community has its own customs, traditions that grow up. All of us are accountable to the same Lord, though. <laughs> you know, we're all drawing. When I talk about, say, a Benedictine community, um, we're, we're all going to be doing our Alexio. We're all going to be obedient to the abbot. We're all going to be loving one another. We're all going to be praying the divine office and going to Mass. You know, we're going to be doing those things that make us Catholics, but the way we know that we're, we're growing is that we have others who can say to us, hey, you know, I know you're doing your Lexio Divina, but you're forgetting to love your neighbor. <laughs> or, hey, I know you're out there serving the poor, that's great, but you're not doing your Lexio Divina. You know, so we're, we'll be able to call each other to give an account. Why are you doing that? And we'll have to give each other reasons. That, and we're accountable to the scriptures. We're accountable to each other. Uh, it's a way, again, of learning to be honest with ourselves. This is what community can do for us. Uh, because it's very, very easy to, um, uh, you know, St. Benedict doesn't want his monks going off on their own until they have long testing in the community. Because it's in these strong bonds, the, the, the strong account I have to give of myself to others who are committed to the same thing that will, will help me to be honest with myself and grow as a rational person. This is the, the dynamic that Anthony went through. It's just that he was not a Benedictine. <laughs> and so uh, when I'm speaking to you as Benedictine Oblates, I'm using a, a different tradition. Not, not, no longer the, just the desert tradition, but the desert tradition as interpreted through Benedict. And uh, 200 years after Antony, the experience in the forests of Gaul and the mountains of Italy was that it was a little dangerous to let people go off on their own too soon. Antony was a special case, but uh, uh, practically speaking, you need a special grace from God to be Antony. <laughs> so we should wrap up here, um, but maybe uh, before we do, I could take for three or four minutes, I could answer questions that others might have. Uh, some of what I'm saying is kind of challenging, I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question. That's, Please. Uh, doesn't really have to do with our discussion. Um, mm -hmm. Can you confirm for me the date of the next topic? Uh, I can. Um, yes, thank you for changing the date for this month. So it got changed yeah. this month? Like it just was changed this month. month. Uh, I didn't have the wrong date. Nope. nope. It just got changed. It just got changed, okay. yeah. 
Right, and, and you know what, Kevin, I'm sorry. We, we, we don't have a good method for getting to people who don't have email addresses right now. You and Paulette, we've got to make sure we, we get to you some other way. Um, the next one will be the second Sunday of December, whenever that is. Okay, yeah, the 11th, right, because the reading group is on the 4th. Yep. So thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, we, we had this wonderful icon workshop this week, uh, but the setup was pretty extensive, and so we needed to have everything in place last Sunday, and it didn't really make for a, a good situation for the oblique meeting. So thank you. Any questions about community and uh, personal growth? Oh, sure. One well, more. So, uh, follow up to your point on those comments, if mm -hmm. I'm understanding it correctly, then the most, one of the most important communities is in a way for other members of the community to be mirrors of the individual's experience mm -hmm. uh, and in so doing kind of clarify the truth of the individual, which in, in some fundamental sense is a truth we all share. It, it is a truth we all share. Um, and that, again, as I say, that is a commitment as Catholics that, that we, we have, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. I think the, the danger is to see that, that we might be able to understand the implications of that one truth on our own without help. Well, yeah. I mean, it, I, in many of the ideas you've offered today, mm -hmm. you've, it sounded like kind of it's all very sort of useful to the self. Um, mm -hmm. But I know, and I'm sure you know much better than I do, that this is not about, I am not the center of this experience. Right, right. Um, uh, so in the end, this is all about making me available to this deepest relationship to the God that's deeper in me than I am. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I guess I'm taking that for granted. That what, right. what our, our goal is, 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 uh, is to do God's will uh, and, and to know him. And to, and to manifest the body of Christ for the sake of the world, you know. Um, I, though you remind me of uh, one other thing I could say that, that uses language that's quite topical today. Uh, the, the church's focus on the family. So we've had two synods on the family. The importance of the family as the first unit of the church, you know, the, sort of the first unit of community is the family. Uh, it's not the individual. So, so the, the Catholic Church separates itself from modern political theory in a very strong way this way. First, we're families. And the, and the protection of the family has to be an important part of our identity as Catholics. Because there's no other way. If the family is broken apart or is suffering in some way, we can't build up the kinds of communities in which we can effectively um, give witness to the gospel. So, um, and and, and uh, this is this this is why it's such a, a an important issue in the church right now, uh, and and it's why the whole question of marriage and divorce is a major one because uh, marriage obviously is um, the foundation of the family. You know, that's that that's that's what makes the family uh, in in under normal circumstances, I should say. So, um, so so I think that insight in the church, which we would talk about as coming from natural law, which would make it appear to be something inaccessible to other people, is actually the product of long experience in the church of what life is actually like and how God has ordered it. Uh, it's, it's, it's not held fideistically in some way. It's actually 
it's it's a rational kind of thing. But rational if you if you belong to the community that is the church already. <laughs> so, all right. Yes, Kenneth. So, what would all this say about someone pursuing the aromatic life? Good question. Good question. Um, I would say. Uh, It would be important, for instance, to check the, the so the, the church will permit this in communion with the bishop. You know, the bishop will, will be the person who authenticates it. And for him to authenticate it, there will have to be certain other witnesses to the authenticity of this call. And I guess this gets back to the idea of stability uh, that I started with. A, a community... Uh, has first the function of stabilizing us so that we don't, we're not distracted, we don't avoid ourselves, we don't avoid God by lots of obfuscating talk and activity. And so the hermit is witness to uh, a particular kind of stability. Uh, and in St. Benedict's understanding, it's actually an outgrowth of community. So there are those in the community who will move to uh, a certain type of relationship with God that, that involves a very deep interior excavation of the self. Uh, and the, to realize this purpose, he or she will actually separate him or herself from the community physically, but, but not affectively, right? So we're still... And, and you see this in monasteries where there are hermitages. This is a part of our tradition. Um, Thomas Merton, for example, lived in a hermitage the last many years of his life. But he was never, at least in, in, the intention was never for him to separate from the community, but only to draw apart to do this important interior work for the sake of the whole. You know, that, that hopefully this would produce actually the kind of wisdom that Antony had access to. But it starts with the community in some way. I'd have to think about that more. How, how my presentation in particular, which is intended for uh, a Benedictine audience, would be developed in, in a fruitful way to understand the aromatical life. Which I think we'd all benefit from in the West especially. Uh, Eastern monasteries, they usually build a hermitage before there's anybody to inhabit it. <laughs> the assumption is that if you have a good, healthy community, it's going to produce hermits. So, all right. How do hermits benefit the community? Oh, by their prayer. <laughs> by their, 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 their very um, singular devotion to God. Uh, I, I'd take you back to Antony, you know. Antony, after his struggle with the demons, which, by the way, I'd like to point out, took 32 years. Okay, it was not a slow process. It was not something that he went into his retreat and came out two years later. It's 32 years. He became the, the physician for all of Egypt. So he came out of his hermetic life. He did. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, but, you know, he, he was benefiting people even when he was, uh, I mean, if we believe in the communion of saints, we believe in the, the power of prayer. Uh, anybody can benefit anybody, uh, even if they're, if they're not with them directly. But I think the danger, uh, and this is where I'll have to stop, uh, I would just say that the danger of the aromatical life, I think, is best... Uh, exemplified in uh, Brothers Karamazov, if you've ever read this, 
Uh, Father Farapont is the hermit, the community hermit. And, um, but but, but he, he's proud and he doesn't know it. And, and so he actually does damage because he sees demons everywhere and he, he accuses everybody of being bad. But he himself, because he's lived by himself for many years and hasn't listened to anybody else's advice, he's profoundly self-deceived. And uh, whereas in, in Brothers Karabatsov, the, the holy spiritual Abba, it doesn't cut a very impressive figure in terms of his asceticism or anything. And he was a former military officer who fought in a duel and did all these things you're not supposed to do if you're a monk. But it humbled him. And in his communion with others, he grew in a self-knowledge that he actually became the spiritual master. And again, it, it doesn't mean that, that all hermits are, are, are Father Farrakhan. It's just that the... Um, the, what, what Father Farapont was missing, as I said, was somebody else to tell him, hey, you're wrong about this. <laughs> and, and he wasn't willing to listen. And so his call was, was not an authentic one, I think we might say. Or, or was profoundly in, in danger. So I have to stop because uh, part of my commitment to community is being with the brothers for the office of sex. So our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Amen. Thank you so much, and um, I'm done with my traveling, and it's possible that I'll, I'll be a little